Houses and Eastfield Park. They created a brutal institution which actually punished the people who couldn't survive in their own society. I think they thought they were doing the right thing. There's something wrong with you, or that you're not trying, or you're feckless. He lasted 15 minutes. He died when he was born, and then he was buried under the wall. In 1847, 100 Fishponds Road, Eastville Workhouse, opened its doors. Nearly 200 years later, it still strikes fear in the people who remember the verboding building, which was knocked down in 1972. When I started researching the workhouse, the Bristol Radical History Group kept popping up. So I'm going to speak to Dr Roger Ball, a founding member of the group. As everyone says, he's the man to talk to. So there was kind of a stick without a carrot. The decision was to make workhouses worse conditions than the worst conditions of the poor on the outside. So it was very disciplinarian, based around the idea of making what they called indoor relief less eligible, worse than anything on the outside. Women who are pregnant, you've got women with young children, women whose partners have died in an accident or been severely injured, families that are sick, people with mental health problems, you've got the unemployed, the elderly, the infirm, you know. So all the big groups in society that today would at least have some support from the welfare system were the people in the workhouse. It wasn't full of the able-bodied lazy. So that's the unintended consequence. So yeah, they created a brutal institution which actually punished the people who couldn't actually survive in their own society because they couldn't earn a wage. It didn't matter who you were or where you came from, if your circumstances changed, you could still end up in the workhouse. Me and my mum started looking through the British newspaper archives, and as I trained as an actor, one article really stood out to me. About an actress, Frances Morley, or her stage name, Blanche Payne. The article was titled, Death of Aged Actress in Bristol. You see me, Lord Bassanio, where I stand such as I am. Though for myself alone, I would not be ambitious in my wish to wish myself much better. Um, so what, what, can, what have we found? Right, she's aged 67. She's a married lady. She was born in Cheapside, London, and she was declared insane at the age of 65. Charles Dickens commended her in her acting, and in her mid-60s, her husband of three years puts her in the workhouse, and she's declared insane. What got her to that point? If she was mentally ill, why wasn't she in a hospital? These are questions I hope to answer later on. But first, Roger found something unusual about the workhouse in Eastville. We all got drunk one night sitting around here looking at old maps 
And then uh, we sort of realised there was a burial ground around the corner. It says disused in 1905, so we was like, well, what's that then? And we realised that the burial ground was associated with the workhouse. There was no sign that it had been a burial ground. We were astounded, you know. We found the death registers for the workhouse. I remember going down the first time and looking and realising there were thousands of people. I couldn't, it was just huge amounts of information. So we spent several years collecting all the names of everybody who was in there. We wanted to name everybody who'd been in there who'd been forgotten. Where are they? And we thought, right, okay, what we're gonna do is we're gonna do two things. We're gonna name them all, get all the data about them, put it online, and we're gonna memorialize them because this is totally wrong. It's said that the paupers were buried like dogs. But when speaking with Roger, he told me this wasn't exactly true. Because this is a picture I'm showing you now, which shows a pet cemetery at Ashton Court. So you can see a satin born on September the 1st, 1892, their dog, and Sylvie as well. So these dogs get gravestones, but the 4,000 paupers at Rosemary Green and many other thousands of paupers in the city didn't even get gravestones. So I always say they weren't, the charts were wrong, they were buried worse than dogs. So I spent the day at the Bristol Archives trying to find out more about Francis. So she went into the workhouse in 1905, not 1911, like we first thought. And she died in 1925 of liver problems. Now, the records say that she's buried at Greenbank Cemetery, not the burial ground. But I still can't find any record of her there. The area where the workhouse used to be is actually quite built up now. There's a medical centre, council houses, the park which we now know is the burial ground. I've arranged to have a chat with a couple of locals, Matthew Billington, the stonemason who built the memorial at Rosemary Green, and Joan Knight. She did an art project on the workhouse and lives next door to the burial ground. You must have hands that are immune to the cold. No, I have gloves. (laughs) (laughs) I actually approached them. One of our neighbours had been to the meeting where it had been decided that they were going to put together a project to place a memorial. So I sent them an email, and then about a year later, sent them another one. (laughs) At the top of the stone is a picture of the workhouse itself. At the bottom, there's some pictures chosen from pictures drawn by the local school kids. We asked them to just draw their response to what they'd heard about the workhouse. The children were really incensed by the treatment that the children got at that time. Described it as, that's abuse, that is. So is this the burial ground as well? Yeah. Oh, wow, Okay. And because I just thought it was was unconsecrated. Yeah. So I thought if you weren't a Christian, then you got buried here. But above that, you got buried in Greenbank Cemetery. But Bill, who did the stone, said no, they were all buried on this land. No matter what you were, you were just buried there? Yeah. And then when they knocked down the house, the big building, and they built these, they dug up all the bones, but they literally did it with a great big digger, and then they buried them in a pit somewhere else. Oh, my God. Which Bill, I think, is doing another stone for. Towards the bottom of the hole, several bones came out. There was a couple of people there who sort of felt more spooked by the bones than, than others and decided that they were... Once the hole had been prepped properly, the bones would be sort of put back in at the bottom near the sides before the, the stone was put in and fixed. When we were surveying it, 
a, a local resident came by and he said, I know a bit about this. He said, I wasn't involved when they demolished the workhouse. He said, I used to work for the company that demolished the workhouse. Bodies buried 15 feet deep, stacked on top of each other. The council of the church made the decision to move the bodies, smashed the whole thing up. The demolition people said they filled 167 boxes with big bones and then they put them in the back of a transit van and drove them up to Avonview Cemetery in Greenbank. They dumped them into three holes, covered them over and they were left unmarked. We went to the council and to the church and said, you know what, you're responsible for this, so you're going to have to pay the money had a gravestone made. So that'll be the final piece of the jigsaw because they have to be marked. While I had Roger's knowledge at hand, I asked him for some help finding more information about Francis. And we had a look at some of the workhouse records. So, what's her first name? Francis. Francis. Francis, Francis Anne Mary. Mary. Yeah. 25. Yeah. Got her. Brilliant. So it's that one. Yeah. What interested Roger is what drew me to Francis's story. What led her to this point? And why was she in there for so long? It seems that the workhouses became the cheaper alternative to housing the mentally ill, rather than giving them the treatment and support they needed. So she's buried, that's confirmed, that she's buried in Greenbank Cemetery. Do you know how long she was in there then, from 1909? Is that right? Yeah, 1909 she went in. And she stayed there what? I don't know where I'd 16 find years. But maybe she stayed in there. Maybe she was mentally ill. Maybe they kept her in there. It's very interesting that she stayed there, though, because by that stage, they're kind of reforming it so people come out and yeah. go to the asylum. Well, that's or... why I thought um, it had turned into a nursing home, because oh, I'll have to see if I can forward you the article. But she sounds so she sounds very comfortable. From the sounds of the article, it almost sounds like she is in a private room, hmm. sort of. At Eastville. That's odd. It's that really might. strange. But maybe it's 25, though. I mean, if she's in there a long time, it suggests to me that it's a mental health problem yeah. and that no one's, no one's come to get her out or maybe she did have a mental health problem. It feels to me like if she's a benign patient that they've kept in the workhouse because it's cheaper again, maybe, you know, to keep her in there. So that's why it's an interesting one. If she was mentally ill, what was she still doing in there? Mm-hmm. What was she still doing there? An elderly lady, silver-haired, her face possessing small, refined features, her voice gentle and sweet-toned, wished, Good afternoon. But declined the offer of a cigarette, remarking with a smile, I have no small vices. Taking her mother's maiden name, the young actress became known as Blanche Payne. On one occasion, Charles Dickens, who had given one of his readings, waited to see Miss Payne congratulated her heartily upon her performance. She is a wonderful old lady, and her memory is remarkable. She is never happier than recounting her experiences, for she proudly informs, I can certainly entertain when called upon to do so. And she is at Eastville Institution. Francis died in the workhouse in 1925, a few years after this interview. She was buried in an unmarked plot in Greenbank Cemetery, in a grave with her husband and his first wife. Even though she had a complicated and tragic life, which I have only briefly touched upon, she seemed content in those last few years. Roger also told me about George Theobald. He lived for 15 minutes and was buried under the wall, 
Children who died very, very young, you know, in childbirth or just after in, in a few days, they were unbaptized. According to the vagaries of religion at the time, they weren't um, allowed to be buried in consecrated ground. And all these un unbaptized children were buried outside the limits of the graveyard. So we've got 115 babies, at least 115, that were probably buried outside the, the you know, somewhere in the waste ground around the, around the waste ground around the waste ground. So what now? What about those who were moved from the burial ground? The second memorial is currently in place at Avonview Cemetery, to be unveiled in the next few weeks. It reads, Here lie the remains of 4,084 people, inmates of Eastville Workhouse, formerly interred at Rosemary Green. They were reburied here in 1972. And then, at the bottom, in large, clear letters, never forgotten. It's pretty easy to work out why Eastville is called Eastville. Ville, in French, means city. And the neighbourhood is situated between Eastern and Fishponds, in the northeast of the city. Stadium, opened 1897, used to be the home of Bristol Rovers Football Club, as well as being used for Greyhound Racing and Speedway. The site has now been developed by Swedish company IKEA and the Tesco Superstore. Eastville Stadium was also known as the Bristol Stadium. When Bristol Rovers left the stadium in 1986 to move to Twerton Park, home of non-league Bath City, there was much uproar. The only relic left once the stadium was demolished for retail development was the old Eastville Club, which was housed in the far left-hand corner of the site. It is still open for business today. The club was frequented by Bristol Rovers fans and players alike. In my opinion, and as a fan of the club for over 40 years, losing Eastville Stadium to the bulldozer was the beginning of the end for the club, who after this day struggled to provide premiership facilities for its fans, unlike Bristol City, who have built a superb new stadium in South Bristol. The record attendance for a match at Eastville was 39,462 against Preston North End in an FA Cup tie. Built near to a gas holder, the constant smell of town gas in the air gave rise to the name used for Bristol Rovers fans of the gas, or Gasheads. In 1977, the Newport Wasps Speedway team relocated to Bristol as the Bristol Bulldogs, and remarkably the Speedway track was placed on top of the Greyhound circuit, and then dug up again after each meeting. The Speedway only ran for two seasons in the Bristol League before the team withdrew, and Speedway has never been run in the city to this day. Greyhound Racing. Racing started on Saturday, June the 16th, 1928, becoming the second track in Bristol to open after the Knoll Stadium. First ever winner was a Greyhound called Vivacious, who collected £20 for his connections. The Eastville Stadium officially closed on the 27th of October 1997, with the entire Greyhound operation moving to a sister track at Swindon. Mike Jay is the official historian for Bristol Rovers Football Club. 
Eastville, your memories of Eastville and Eastville Stadium. Happy memories of Eastville. I went there first in 1967. I was born in Eastville, so I suppose it was uh, likely I was going to be a Rovers supporter. So yeah, I lived in Eastville from 19... Well, I was born in the mid-50s. Uh, and right up until about 1970, so yeah, I used to regularly attend Eastville Stadium. Saw all the very uh, important sort of uh, league matches in uh, Don Mexon in the 70s, and it was a tr- tremendous stadium, tremendous at- atmosphere, especially during the uh, floodlit matches in the Cup in the early 70s when we played teams like Stoke City with Gordon Banks in goal and Manchester United when George Best and Bobby Chalk was playing. So, yeah, tremendous memories of Eastville Stadium and wish, wish, to be honest, we were still there. What was special about it? Was it the gas works and the smell of the gas? Or? No, I, mean, I think it was such a nice big stadium and it would generate a good atmosphere because, I mean, on, on, in those cut ties, I mean, we had 35,000 people watch, uh, watch Stoke and Manchester United. So you can imagine the atmosphere. Uh, during that sort of period, it was absolutely fantastic to go to a stadium and it'd be full and all the supporters behind the club. And uh, say we had a successful cut runs and also won promotion in 74 with Don Megson. So it was a tremendous period for the club, yeah. yeah when did you first go down there as a, as a kid living in Eastville? Uh, 1st of April 1967. I remember it very well. We were playing football in Eastville Park with, with friends from uh, in, in my street. I lived in Myvart Street in Eastville, which is just off of St. Mark's Road. And at half time, uh, in the game we managed to sneak in turnstiles were left open and we managed to sneak in and watch the second half of the Peterborough match I think it was, ended up a 1-1 draw and after that the following week I started going regularly and started paying to go and watch all the matches so uh, yeah so I've, I've only missed probably about a dozen games since then since 1967 and you got a season ticket after that I guess um, into your adulthood and did you become the official historian at your time in Eastville? Yeah, I mean, I was helping writing in the programme from about 1977, so this season I think I've done about 42 years writing in the Rovers programme. Yeah. Gordon Bennett was the editor at that time, yeah. and he encouraged me to write things about the history of the club, and it all snowballed from there, really. It's written quite a few books during that period about the club's history. Yeah, yeah. And then another strange anomaly about Eastville was always the M32, wasn't it, and the flyover. And you used to get away fans sometimes, I noticed, when Chelsea played there once in the 70s, watching the game from the flyover, from, from the M32. It was strange, wasn't it? Yeah, it was always uh, a, a bit of a hilarity, because a lot of cars used to slow down and go along the M32 and stop for a few minutes to watch the game. You've got a fantastic view from up on the M32, and then you see a police car come along and move them along. So, uh, yeah, it was uh, not obviously stopping on a, on a motorway, especially a busy motorway. Even in the 70s, it was quite, uh, quite dangerous. But, yeah, it was, it, it was, I think the football ground was the closest football ground to a motorway. I think the next one nearest to the motorway, I think it's Walsall's Best Scott Stadium. The old stadium, yeah. yeah the old stadium, yeah. And it's interesting, you had good transport links, didn't you, with the M32 and also Stapleton Road train station, something that the MEM hasn't got today. Exactly. I mean, you've got to remember, in you know, going back in the 1930s and 40s and 50s, Bristol Rovers players and supporters used to use the Stapleton Road station to travel all around the country to watch their club or play for their club. So it was a, a, an important place to be. And it was closed, really, in 1966 under the, the beaching cuts. Because I remember a friend of mine's father worked on the railways at Stapleton Road and I can remember the day he came home and told his wife and the kids that um, he was going to be out of a job. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, we do have a Stapleton Road station still, though, don't we? But it's slightly different position. Yeah, I mean, it's just the same station, but obviously in those days, in the 60s, it was a very busy commuter route and such like, and a very important uh, staging post for people to go to Swindon and London, etc. But, yeah, it's just a, a shell of what the station used to be back in the 50s. It's a very... Very, very busy place. And it served Eastville very well for fans, didn't it, coming up from Temple Meads? Yeah, there used to be football specials uh, for away fans. Like, I remember Aston Villa came down in FA Cup tie and they brought, like, about two or 3,000 people on the trains. And Rovers fans go into London, uh, big games, get to Chelsea in the FA Cup. I can remember going there with, with Rovers and we took probably two or 3,000 people on the train, yeah. And I remember also going up to Everton to watch Rovers play Everton in the Cup in 1969 and it was a, a, a football special from Eastville the, the first game was postponed on the Saturday because of the snow but then it was played on the Tuesday loads of Rovers fans went up on the train from, from Stapleton Road Station and they were thinking the attendance on that day on that night was about 55,000 people most of have ever seen it in a Rovers uh, match other than at Wembley yeah, now, of course, uh, Eastville's long gone, but not forgotten. We've got Ikea now, we've got a retail uh, Tesco there, a Tesco store there as well, a retail complex. It is, it is sad, isn't it, to go past the M32 and see that there? Yeah, whenever I go along the M32 now, I always look across to see what, what was used to be the stadium, and you say Ikea's there. And it's a bit annoying from Rovers fans' point of view that uh, Ikea have never acknowledged the fact Originally, when they built the, the Superstore, they were going to put a plaque in to say that Bristol Rovers Football Club played there from 1896 right up until 1986, which is an awful long time. But they've never acknowledged that fact, which is a bit disappointing, really, from uh, Rovers fans' point of view. Yeah, we've also got the Eastfall Club still there, so that's the only really real sort of um, connection with the old uh, Rovers there, isn't it? Yeah, this, the Eastfall Club is a social club where the fans and, and the players used to go before and after the match and is it still thriving today which is a bit surprising in this day and age with lots of public houses closing but yeah the Eastford Club carries on uh, and it's got a big tradition as I say of Rovers players like Alfie Biggs used to play snooker there before the game have a pint of beer and they go and play a game on the Eastfield pitch which uh, you can't imagine that sort of thing happening today but it certainly happened in the early 1960s Will you remember yourself? I can remember uh, seeing uh, the players in, in the Eastfield Club uh, during the late 60s. I remember Harold Jarman, Ken Ronaldson, and Ray Graydon, people like that. And, uh, yeah, it was quite a meeting point for the players. They used to have breakfast in there as well. But after training, they had training at Eastfield Park and then come, come along to the Eastfield Club and have their breakfast or their lunch, whatever it was. Yeah. Do you still live in Eastfield now, or do you have any re re um, relatives in Eastfield? No, I don't. We moved out of Eastville in 1970. We bought, uh, my parents bought a house in Stapleton. Yeah, so it's a long, long time, and the, and the whole area has changed quite dramatically since the, when we moved out in 1970. Graham Lynch, what's your memories of going to Eastville Stadium? Being a Harcliffe lad, it was getting on the bus, um, getting off at Old Market, and then walking through Stapleton, down Stapleton Road, and then crossing the bridge over to the, um, the turnstiles. Uh, usually getting there for about quarter to three, so by that time... It's quite a crowd in there, so you walk in and that buzz you got when all the crowd starts singing Goodnight Irene and then obviously the teams come out and it's but you've had all the the flower beds and everything else and the track around the ground. But then the north enclosure starts singing Harold, Harold, because Jarman would be over there telling them about the last cup of tea he's had. 
Yeah, it was good. It was uh, it was it was a good natured ground. You know what I mean? It was atmosphere. Disappeared when the south stand burned down, but um, before that, it was cracking. And being a Hartcliffe person um, for that side of the city, what made you want to go to Rovers when you were at the south side? Well, I started watching both teams. It, you know, go on a Saturday morning, Saturday go and watch the city. Following Saturday, see the Rovers, but. Rovers always played with two wingers, you know, Bobby Jones, Ara Jarman, you know, may not have been the best team in the league, but we certainly played it an attractive football, which City at the time didn't with Alan Dixon charging, you know, so it was always good fun. Keith, what's your memories of Eastville Stadium? Good football, most of the time. They fought for their shirt, most of them. A few didn't, but most of them did. A lot of local lads. What did you think of the stadium itself? A bit run down? What? Bit of death, yeah, it was like, but um, can't take away the tilting, can you? Like, you know what I mean? Like, that's what it was all about, like, rumours. Well, in my day, like, you know. What does Eastville mean to me? Well, going to Ikea, obviously, but not to buy furniture, more to go and eat the Swedish meatballs in the cafe or some cheap hot dogs. Also, I remember getting smashed at Love Saves the Day Festival and Tokyo World in Eastville Park. Talking about the park, there used to be a Lido, a.k.a. an outdoor swimming pool, which might be making a comeback soon. Anyway... Here are some local residents talking about their memories of the park over the years. Here, pleasure attracts both young and old. Some seek the grass, others head for the river. Here, cruising or darting, fish are caught with a rod, and here the weary relax by bathing. Here the student wanders contemplating the arts and the joyous lover dotes upon his happy beloved. Hello, I'm Hilda Brace. I was born in July the 5th, uh, 1928, so I'm 92 now. And I lived in the cemetery road for uh, 17 years until I moved into the house I live in now. So I've lived here since 1945. I, would, I knew everybody in the area at one time because I worked in the shop for 14 years, in the grocery shop, and I knew people that don't know anyone now. I'm like the only one here that's uh, the oldest resident I am here now. There wasn't a day went by without we all went in the park. We played in the park all the time, all the children in the street. During the war, when... The, the raids were on. We didn't go in down there so much, not then. It was like a black cloud all the way through the war. I knew two girls that were killed there. They were after the, the uh, big cannon on Purdown. They were trying to bomb it, but of course the bomb dropped in the park. My name is Jenny Peplow and I'm Hilda Brace's daughter and I am 61 years old. I was born in December 1958. When I was young I thought it was my park. I thought it belonged to me because I lived so close to it. It was just my back garden, really. And uh, every day was was a holiday, I suppose, really. And also, because we lived so close, my mum used to shout to me in the summer, especially when it got dark at 10 o'clock, Jenny, it's time to come in. And I always heard her, but I pretended I didn't. <laughs> my name is Joan Seville, 
and I live in Lodge Causeway. I'm 92 years of age and my birthday is 1927. Uh, just before the war, they were going to have a big exhibition of children's work and they put up about six big structures, wood, uh, for this exhibition. And in a sense, it was a godsend because when the chaps came home from Dunkirk, they had nowhere to put them and they used that. I'm Andy G, and um, I'm a local resident. Got involved with the Friends of Eastfield Park, um, which is a group uh, made up of people who um, try to improve uh, the facilities in the park, create activities and events that the local people need and want. We're so lucky. We're in the middle of a city uh, to have something as big and important and green and, and full of life um, as Eastfield Park. It's really quite a testament to time. Uh, it's lasted this long. And, you know, we've got otters, we've got herons, you know, we've got kingfishers flying around all over the place. And, of course, the, the boundary of the park stretches from the M32 uh, and follows the river, river Froome all the way up to the Blackberry Hill. And as soon as you basically cross that road, you're out of Eastfield Park and you're into Snuff Mills. So the, the idea for Eastfield Park came around, I think it was 1871, when a leaflet appeared uh, around the city addressed to the aldermen of the city. And it, uh, its title was The Cry of the Poor. Basically, what that was saying was that it's all very well for people in Clifton to have the downs and, and, and the, the, the better-off areas to have all these open-air facilities, whereas down here in East Bristol, which was predominantly an industrial area where uh, the factory chimneys were, were churning out all sorts of muck and, and really affecting the, the, the lives of the local people, so they didn't have the opportunities that the better off people had and so that leaflet was basically saying you know why isn't there something down here for us you know we need fresh air as well i think the movement and the the call for something like a public park um, really took off and around the turn of a century plans were drawn up to purchase land from the smythe estate which includes the stoke, stoke park not too far away they obviously got architects in and they, they looked at the finances and they decided it was something that could be done a lot of the information we, we get about the park in, in the old golden days comes from people like Hilda and others who've been around the park for a long, long time and um, have lots of memories and stories and anecdotes that um, really do inform the history of the park. When we were teenagers, I was in a gang and there were 90 of us in this gang, 90. We used to congregate down um, in the shelter in the middle of the park. If there was not enough room in the shelter, we would climb on the roof and sit on there. And we used to drink cider in there. And the park ranger would come along and tell us to disperse, but we didn't take any notice of him at all. And then we also used to congregate in this pavilion up here, but it's, it's dilapidated now. I think you might find my name carved on the uh, seats. If I saw a gang of 90 kids now, I'd run a mile. But it was quite innocent, you know. I worked in the shop up there. Uh, I knew people that lived on the main road and they, 
one lady had a lodger and uh, she asked me if I would like to uh, befriend him. And uh, he invited me to go down to the uh, tennis with some friends of his. And then I saw this group of people there. That, and I thought, well, it looks interesting, really. But up to then, I'd been uh, a church member of Eastfield Park Methodist Church. Three times a day, I'd go to, uh, on a Sunday. And uh, from then on, uh, the tennis took over. Played tennis four or five times a week. I used to book the rink for the club and get the refreshments and everything. I was 21 then. And, uh, my dad used to play balls on the green, but I used to play tennis on the courts. They locked me in the pavilion once. I went into uh, to the toilet before, just before we were all going home. And uh, for a joke, they locked the door. Well, I didn't know that. I thought they didn't know. They thought they'd gone. I'd gone, I think. And I had to get jump out of the window with my tennis racket. But I don't know how I did it because those windows were so high up. I must have stood on a bench of some kind and opened the window and jumped out. My eldest sister, she was seven years older than me, she had a boyfriend in the Red Cross. And he, because I didn't swim, he said, oh, you need to learn to swim. So one evening in the house, he laid me across the chair and taught me the strokes. The following day, he took me into the baths, into the middle part, held me supported me for a while and he said now do the strokes and then he said off you go and off I went <laughs> so uh, I was uh, about nine then nine years old then when we went as a school a class went to swimming lessons you had your teacher and she was instructing you on the bank saying do this for breaststroke and all the rest of it now, you never had anybody in the water with you that could be an adult. And this particular day, I was going to do my two lengths. And my father, being a, a person in the swimming baths, came down with me and he came in, he got into the water. He was there, you know, swimming about. Well, a child got in difficulties, got out of her depth and screamed and all the rest of it. And a girl in our class at school could lifesave. So she lifesaved her, but father swam by the child's side because she was only a child, swam by her side until she got the girl to safety. So he went up to the teacher. He said, uh, you're in charge of this class. He said, yes. He said, how did you cope with that? She said, I couldn't. She couldn't cope with the cooks. She couldn't swim. So he said, well, now's your chance to learn. And he pushed her in. And unfortunately, he got reprimanded very badly. But the upshot was no class of children could go to the swimming baths without an adult in the water with them that could swim. So some good came out of it. For this episode, I'd like to thank Paul Davies, Emily Wilden, 
and Joe Feather. This podcast has been brought to you by BCFM, Bristol's first community radio station, in partnership with Bristol 24-7, Bristol Museums, Bristol Archives, and the University of the West of England, funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund. Cheers, mate. Bye.